When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. key moment was on Wednesday night, the rioting in the middle Shankill Road area. That's a, a loyalist heartland, if ever there was one. For the author and journalist Henry MacDonald, it was the night when the so-called peace wall in Belfast was stormed that he knew things were serious. It's actually a gate that cuts off a road called Lanark Way, which leads on to the Republican West Belfast. When that gate was breached by rioters, they used stolen burnt vehicles to ram the, the gate open. They got to within yards of young Republicans who were riding on the other side, who were throwing missiles over the peace barrier into the Protestant end and vice versa. That was the moment when it got dangerous. That was the moment when this whole thing could have turned very, very ugly and nasty. Why has the peace in Northern Ireland suddenly come to seem so precarious? And what happens next? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, fire on the streets of Northern Ireland. Well, I'm Henry MacDonald. I'm Belfast-born. I'm a journalist who's been working in this business for about... 35 years. I covered the Northern Ireland Troubles extensively. I've written seven books in relation to the Troubles. Henry, where are you living at the moment? I'm living back in Belfast after being in exile in Brighton for a couple of years, so back to the old home ground. What was it like to go back? I was expecting to go back anyway. It was extremely quiet because of lockdown and things were, you know, it was it was all about the pandemic, politics, that was it. And then we had this sudden eruption of street disorder and violence, and that came out of the blue. On the Wednesday of last week in Belfast, when the peace wall was breached, the sight and sounds took Henry back to some of the darkest periods of Northern Ireland's history. It marked an escalation from disturbances to something far more ominous. Most of the violence was principally working-class loyalists, young men in the main, against the police. But this was the exception. There was missile throwing going on on both sides. And when they breached that barrier, and those barriers are hard to breach. I mean, they're thick steel gates, which are opened electronically during the day and closed at night. When they got through, that was the most dangerous moment, I think. We nearly came close to something more disastrous. Every marching season, you know, sometime between after Easter to the end of the summer, you get 
flare-ups here and there at sectarian interfaces, you know, where Catholic area meets Protestant area and bands, loyalist bands are marching past. But this was on a bigger scale. This was happening in Derry. This was happening in Cookstown, in Ballymena, in Carrickfergus, Larne, and various parts of Belfast. So it was much more widespread. I haven't seen violence like this for at least a decade, at least. And, of course, it's only the death of the Duke of Edinburgh, which seems to have suspended it for the moment. Every loyalist protest, except one interface area of the north inner city of Belfast, all loyalist areas went quiet. And they literally called all their their band parades off, their protests or demonstrations. Let's just try and understand who is doing what here. Who is being violent and who is involved in organising the violence. At one level, you could say, well, it's entirely spontaneous, people are fed up, you've had COVID, you've had youth who haven't got anything to do, and maybe that's why it's happening. How do you explain it? The overwhelming majority, you could say roughly 80% of the violence is being conducted in loyalist working-class areas, the same areas that were the home ground of the loyalist paramilitaries in the Troubles. The presence of paramilitary groups still in existence in those areas might suggest that there was some sort of quasi-military organisation to the the riots. I'm not so sure about that, but I think we can be certain of this. A lot of the violence was spontaneous, but was allowed to happen. In those areas, say the Middle Shankill, nothing moves without the Ulster Volunteer Force knowing about it. My understanding on the ground from my sources is that the loyalist paramilitary stood back and watched, observed, and let the younger elements get on with it. I think we're going to have to do a little bit of explaining here, Henry. The Ulster Volunteer Force is certainly an organisation that my early journalistic days we heard a lot about. But I think you're going to have to explain, firstly, who the loyalists actually are, and second, the role of these organisations, which a lot of people thought had disappeared after the Good Friday Agreement. Yes. Firstly... The unionist population in general is, in the main, but not all, completely Protestant and pro-British, pro-remaining within the UK. The loyalists are kind of a subset of of that population, mainly working class, more militant, and the people who fought, in quotation marks, the war during the Troubles, okay? And they saw themselves as the defenders of their physical communities from the IRA, and also in a grander scale, defending what they call the Union. So that's who they are. The Good Friday Agreement delivered many things. It delivered an end to war. But what it didn't deliver are two things. One, the withering away of these organisations, these illegal groups. And two, sectarian division. There are more peace lines or peace barriers, walls, gates, separating Catholic and Protestant communities than there were when the Troubles were going. Okay, More were built after the Good Friday Agreement. So there's a paradox for you. And that division is the biggest fault line of all. And that hasn't been addressed. So loyalists are an element within unionism. And as we know, unionists are in government instalment together with Sinn Féin and other people who are nationalist republicans who identify with Ireland. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, the, the, the nationalist parties, Sinn Féin and the SDLP, are pro-United Ireland, and the Unionists are pro-remaining within the UK. The paradox about this latest violence and the, the whole issue of the Union is, 
in order for the union to survive, i.e. Northern Ireland and remain within the UK, unionist parties have to convince more Catholics to be pro-union. Now, the concern of, if you like, liberal-minded unionists is that if this violence was to continue and take on a sectarian nature and the Catholic population were attacked again by loyalist armed groups, that would drive a lot of people who might think, well, you know, it's, we're better off in, in, in the UK, into the arms of nationalism. So, paradoxically, the violence in the longer term could actually undermine the union rather than bolster it. As well as being pretty nasty in itself. So uh, the reason why it was worth going into this is to try and understand the position of the main unionist party, which is the Democratic Unionist Party, which also provides the first minister, Arlene Foster. And the reason why we might want to talk about her for a bit is because of what has happened as a consequence of the funeral last year of an IRA leader. Now, can you take us through who that was, what happened, and how that has played into the current uh, crisis? Bobby Story was a very senior member of the provisional IRA. He was the director of intelligence for the IRA. And in, in later life was, if you like, a kind of enforcer an enforcer for people in Sinn Féin like Jerry Adams, who he was extremely close to. Jerry Adams was the longtime president of the Republican Party Sinn Féin, which started out as the political wing of the provisional IRA. Adams, more than anyone alive, has been credited with turning Sinn Féin into a legitimate political party. Bobby Story was a right-hand man. So Story is a very pivotal character. Without people like Story... Adams's project would not have got off the ground. So he's revered within Republican circles, loathed by Unionists. A life of struggle is a life well lived. And he finished it with a wee smiley face. He dies in the summer, uh, in June, and a mass funeral is organised. There are over 2,000 people. It enraged a lot of people, not just Unionists. I mean... My uncle died a month earlier and there were only six people allowed at the funeral. We, I couldn't go to pay my respects or express my condolences to my, co- to my cousins. And I, we're not alone in that th- through COVID. People adhered to the regulations. But the impression was created in the story funeral that there's one rule for the Republicans and especially those in the higher echelons of the Republican movement and there's one rule for the rest of you. When the police decided not to prosecute anyone about a fortnight ago in connection with breaching COVID regulations about funerals at the time. This created the impression in a lot of unionist minds that there's two-tier policing here, that because the, the friends of Bobby's story could have created a, you know, a lot of trouble on the streets had the police have intervened to reduce the numbers attending the funeral, that, that might is right, okay? That if you have enough muscle and enough menace... You can get your way. In one way, it was very reckless, wasn't it, for senior Sinn Féin people to go to that funeral? Well, you had Michelle O'Neill, the Deputy First Minister, lecturing us on a weekly basis at a joint press conference with Arlene Foster, saying, you must adhere to the rules, you must adhere to the rules, you must adhere to the rules. So when then she's at the funeral, <laughs> and it's obvious that the rules are being broken at this very publicly staged funeral, then, you know, a lot of people in Northern Ireland concluded... Here we go. Hey, there, is a, there, there are rules already. There are two sets of rules, one for you and one for the rest of us. Now, after the funeral, 
there was an inquiry by the police, wasn't there, into whether or not there should be a prosecution? Yes, and the inquiry decided not to prosecute anyone. Even though other people had been prosecuted and fined for taking trips to the countryside or up the mountains of Mourne or so on. So that obviously added fuel to the flames and exacerbated a lot of people's anger. Why did the police decide that? Well, they said there was insufficient evidence. But, I mean, why do I think they decided it? I think they decided it because they didn't want to arrest key people who are seen as major players in the political process. I think it was a political decision by the police. The status of the police service in Northern Ireland has been was one of the most deeply contested questions, both in the run-up to and after the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. And I think it's worth us reflecting, you reflecting on just what kind of can of worms the police in question has been. Yeah. Well, the police in Northern Ireland used to be known as the Royal Ulster Constabulary. And at the time of the Troubles... It's by, by sort of, if you like, towards the end of the Troubles, it was a force that was majority Protestant and Republicans alleged majority Unionist. Although the, the counter argument to that is, well, if you shoot as many Catholic police officers as you did at the start of the Troubles, you'll deter Catholic recruits. But it, it's, it was a raging issue through the peace negotiations. Can we have a reformed police service that has more Catholic recruits called... Call, Call a spade a spade, we want more Catholic officers. And they've done that to a certain extent. The numbers have certainly been raised. But the police remain armed because there are still groups out there that want to kill police officers, i.e. the Republican, the violent Republican dissonance. I mean, policing was on the front line in the war against the IRA. I mean, RUC special branch, I, I think there's a lot of uh, commentators would accept this here, played a major role in winding the IRA's campaign down through infiltration and uh, the use of informants. The RUC also was, it was more or less like an army. I mean, they they, they killed a lot of people in plastic bullets. At the start of the Troubles, they were accused of committing torture against Republican suspects. So it was a highly controversial force. And reforming it or changing it, and if you like depoliticizing it, has been a very, very long process and there's a long way to go. So, yes, the police service, controversial then, controversial now. And the irony is that a lot of younger loyalists have this perception that the police are now on the side of nationalists. One of the reasons I I raised it in this way is because when the First Minister of Northern Ireland, a unionist, then calls for the leading officer of the police service of Northern Ireland to resign, that is a really, really big moment. I telephoned the chief constable this afternoon. I had a a very direct conversation with him and told him that I felt he should resign. If he cared about policing, if he cared about confidence in policing across Northern Ireland, then he should resign. It was an unprecedented moment. It was one time unthinkable to imagine that the leader of unionism would be saying that the chief constable, the the principal police officer of the country, should resign. And I I think uh, talking to the rank and file officers, uh, a number of them, they were extremely concerned about that call. Some of them were not big fans of the chief constable, by the way, but even they felt this this had gone too far. I mean, who actually can get rid of the chief constable? The policing board, they are the elected and appointed members who 
scrutinise and oversee the running of the force. It has members on it who were formerly enemies of the police, such as Jerry Kelly of Sinn Féin. It has unionist members. It has non-unionist, non-nationalist, if you like, lay people, non-political on it as well. The policing board is the body that can ultimately remove him from the post. But I think that's highly unlikely. So the policing board won't do what the first minister, the unionist first minister, has called upon them to do. And presumably the people on the streets in Belfast and elsewhere will see that they're not doing what the leader of the Democratic Unionist Party is calling for them to do. So we just kind of reflect at this moment that that's a difficult moment. Oh, without question. And it's the difficult moment for Arling Foster because she's already been coming under criticism from her right flank over, you know, remaining in government with Sinn Féin after, after the story funeral and also the fallout from Brexit. And we'll come to that, I hope, because uh, I think that's the overarching uh, issue to talk about. But, you know, it's, it's undermining her leadership. And I think the leadership of the DUP is up for question. So what exactly does Brexit have to do with all this? That's in a moment. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One of the factors which has been obviously extremely problematic for the leadership of the Democratic Unionist Party and probably for everybody else has been the consequence of Brexit. Now, briefly, take us through the problem of Brexit and the protocols and where we, and where Northern Ireland ended up and how they've reacted to it. Well, first, a brief history of Brexit. A majority of about 60-40 voted to remain within the European Union in the Northern Ireland electorate. Even some unionists I know voted to remain. A lot of Remain unionists out there. But the outworkings of Brexit and the negotiations have created major problems for all shades of unionism. So Boris Johnson's compromise 
with Brussels at the end of last year, which produced what's called the Northern Ireland Protocol. Basically, it keeps Northern Ireland inside the single market. It is under the rules of the single market in terms of goods and services coming in. And this has meant that you're having border checks, Northern Irish ports, principally Larne and Belfast. That, according to its critics, is a border down the Irish Sea. Now, I think everyone has to share a responsibility of blame here. Not just Boris Johnson's administration, but I think the politicians in Dublin and Brussels. All of them use Northern Ireland as a, a pawn in the kind of chess match between GB and the EU. Irish politicians in Dublin exaggerated, in my opinion, grossly exaggerated the threat of a hard border. Firstly, I don't believe there was that much of a hard border even during the Troubles. There were a number of key pressure points where there was checkpoints on the border. But generally speaking, that 300-mile frontier was porous. And the IRA, for many, many years, we were able to operate freely across it in many, many instances. But anyway, the problem is this. The politicians have warned that a hard border post-Brexit would produce violence are reaping what they sow because what loyalists are saying is, right, okay, so there's a hard border in the Irish Sea, which is economically threatening to decouple Northern Ireland from the UK. Well, we'll use the threat of violence. We're going to say if that border becomes permanent, there will be violence on the streets of Northern Ireland and perhaps elsewhere. And I think that is the real issue that could threaten the entire Good Friday Agreement and, I, I think, loyalism's adherence to the ceasefires. I think that is the, the, the key issue. Uh, and that fact, I think, was missing in a lot of the, the reportage over the last eight to ten days. It's the, the protocol that really counts. When Boris Johnson was, before he became Prime Minister, he went to the Democratic Unionist Party conference and he said there would be no kind of border in the Irish Sea and then went when he was Prime Minister, and signed the protocols. What message does that send to Unis and to Northern Irish people generally about the British government's attitude towards Northern Ireland? I think it underlines an age-old fear within Unionism that they would be sold out by London. I mean, this is nothing new. I mean, Edward Lord Carson, you know, the founder of the anti-home rule movement, the first man to bring armed men onto the streets when, when he formed the original UVF in, in 1912. He said in the 1920s after partition that this was, you know, this was an example, I'm paraphrasing, of London betraying Ulster. So that fear of being betrayed by your allies goes back a long time into history. And I think what Boris Johnson has done by flip-flopping in relation to the border down the Irish Sea, it's another variation on that theme. I don't think it, it changes unionist perception about being unionists. I think that's not the case. But it reinforces their suspicion that in the end, they're on their own. Let's talk about the folk on the streets now and dig down into that a bit. We've talked about, if you like, the kind of background. But when you look at the people actually involved in the riots, what can we say about their age, their motivation and their relationship to political organisation? The majority of the ones out riding I saw on the streets were teenagers. Some of them were as young as 13, yeah, just out of the barely in their teens. They are working class. They come from areas of 
low educational attainment. They're the left behinds that you hear about in Britain, especially in the north of England, with the added factor of the sectarianism and the folk memory of a war just gone by. I spoke to one loyalist part of military ex-commander, a veteran, a gnarly veteran of, of the Troubles, who very much was in favour of the peace process and see, the ceasefires. And he said to me, our trouble is we have to remain relevant because the kids, as he called them on the streets, are saying, you've had your day, now we want to have ours. Hmm. I mean, the, the biggest supporters of, of the peace process, if you can still call it that, and the ceasefires, are the veterans, are the people who've been through who killed or saw their friends killed, went to jail for 20, 30 years, who saw their, their own lives wrecked, saw their communities destroyed. But it's the young ones who don't have any first-hand experience of what it was actually like in the Troubles who are the ones out in the streets wanting to have a go. But what I would say in relation to the young lads that are out rioting they, they, they're very much alike each other. They remind me of lads I knew back in the day in the seventies, who started off throwing a few stones, a few bottles, and then graduated into something more sinister, became recruited into paramilitary armies, and the rest is violent, bloody history. The critical thing about that could be whether or not there are organisations which can pick them up as the stone throwers and petrol bomb throwers that they are now and help turn them into something more threatening. Oh, there's a subcult history of today's rioters being tomorrow's gunmen. I mean, I saw it myself in the area I grew up in, central inner city Belfast. Guys I knew as a primary school with were out rioting, throwing stones at the British Army or the police. And a few years later, they're made men. They're, they're, in, they're in these organisations and they're carrying out bombings and shootings. And at very young ages, I mean, I can think of like one assassination of a friend of my mother uh, who was sh shot dead in 1975. His killer had just turned 16 when he shot this man in his 40s at Point Blank Range, or 50s rather. So the talent pool, if you like, the recruiting net is normally the street fighters. And that begins with the, the disorder of the likes we saw last week. Although I would add this, that disorder was not anywhere like some of the rioting that went on at the height of the Troubles, when you had hundreds and hundreds on the streets in street battles with the police, the army, or the other side of the community. So it's still on a concentrated low level, believe it or not. The concern would be those that are the most militant and the most active will be the ones who are selected to become the next generation of shooters and bombers. So what's your big worry now, Henry? I want to bring the conversation full circle back to that incident you asked me about. What was the, what was the one incident that stood out? My fear would be something like that happening again. Just imagine had those boys got through, when they smashed the barrier down, had got onto the Republican side of the, of the gates and had started to have face-to-face -face fighting hand-to-hand -hand with young nationalists who were engaged in riding on the other side. And if someone had lost their life as a result of that, that could end in communal pressure on either side for revenge, and then we're into a whole new ballgame. The problem when you bring people out into the streets, and even veterans of paramilitarism will tell you this, if you meet them over for a chat, they'll tell you 
Yes, you bring people onto the streets, but you don't know what way it's going to go. It's the, the unpredictability of it is, is the X factor, if you like. It only takes one loss of life for the, this thing to, to spiral out of control, potentially. How could we stop the escalation? I mean, is there anything that people in Britain can do? Or is there anything people in Dublin can do? I think the first thing is there has to be a solution to the, the sea border. There has to be a change in perception within the unionist community that Northern Ireland is not being decoupled out of the UK orbit at present. So that would require some sort of change to the protocol. I don't believe when I hear people in the EU bureaucracy or politicians in Dublin that that's fixed and cannot be renegotiated. I think it will be. That constitutional issue is the thing that is exercising the minds of loyalist paramilitaries the most at the minute, at least the thinking ones, the politically minded ones. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, author, journalist, and contributor to the Sunday Times, Henry MacDonald. You can read more of Henry's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer was Asia Fuchs, the executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. And if you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, you can send us an email by writing to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. Music